There's a place where lovers go to cry their troubles away, and they call it Lonesome Town, where the broken hearts stay. You can buy. Well, hello, uh, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast, and we are continuing our read-through of Stephen King's novel, It, um, and I think, yeah, this puts us about halfway through, maybe just past halfway through, um, with with our, our sixth episode on this book. Um, so basically, today I'll look at the second half of part three which is uh, entitled uh, Grown Ups. And we uh, looked at uh, the chapters. Well, we looked at the reunion chapter and the secondary interlude. And so now we'll finish up. Um, and basically here we're talking about chapter 11, which is the walking tours chapter. Uh, there's also chapter 12, three uninvited guest, which is, um, yeah, we'll talk about it when we get there. It's probably the most, uh, least impactful um, chapter it's almost unnecessary actually there's um but i mean there's some interesting stuff in there i suppose but this entire novel is pretty interesting in contrast to the other chapters those are some of the more disappointing that that one is one most disappointing in my view however walking tours is is fairly interesting um so this is a long chapter kind of like chapter is it three about six phone calls uh, a bit like uh, chapter 10 the reunion as well which is divided into six parts uh, one part for each of our of our characters and it allows each character to be reacquainted with it and dairy in their own way um and it also provides transition to some of the more important themes and tools uh that are dominant in the second half of the novel uh i guess the july and august 1958 stuff as they think back on it uh they start to remember more and more so there's some you know some important things i guess the the three most important i suppose are are the ritual of chud chud which you know i don't know if that's i I guess bill gets that from this is in 1958 when he's reading through books he gets this uh ritual um from there from some book he's reading and it's it's just like Tibetan, like folklore or something. Uh, and I don't know if it's real. I haven't been able to find other references. If you type in Ritual of Chud, all you find is stuff, references to this book. Maybe King was drawing this from something, but it, it's kind of like a ritual duel with shape-shifting creatures in that, in that ritual. Uh, in, the, in the movie version, they kind of remake that as a Native American tradition. But I, th- I think it's just a psychic duel, right? It, it's kind of like uh you know maybe that culture dealt with something that was sort of like it and and this ritual somehow how they defeated it it's it's either vague about what exactly it is and it's never really fully detailed for us it's really just a psychic duel using uh using uh whatever tools are at the 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 antagonist's disposal so that's one thing that we're reminded of the other is Bill's rhyme, uh, he thrust his fist against the post and still insists he sees the ghosts, which uh, showed up in some other King novels prior to this. I think it's mentioned in Salem's Lot, but it, it might be mentioned in some others. Um, 
And again, I don't know how much of this is based on reality or not, but this is his tool for defeating stuttering. It's also his major weapon in the in his own ritual duel, ritual duel with uh, it in 1958. Uh, so the silver dollars, which were actually mentioned before, but we get a, more of a clear idea about that. So there's, um, you know, important weapons, I suppose, are being discussed here. Um, but yeah, so the idea behind the walking tours chapter is set up in the previous chapter, and that is that each of these people need to reacquaint themselves with dairy uh, on their own before uh, before uh, coming back together as a group because they encountered it alone first before encountering them as a group. And, and I think the July 1958 chapter is really about the power of the group, uh, you know, all seven being put together. That quartet fully formed is, you know, at the peak of its power in July and August of, of 1958. And so this parallels sort of the first half of the novel, the, the June 58 stuff, where the characters were kind of introducing, meeting um, it on their own, and then talking about it and coming together, you know, through the discussion. So uh, it's, it's kind of paralleling that. Now, there's a few here that send, you get, now you get some sense that maybe it's trying to kill them here, but it is kind of trying to break up that group and get some people to flee, I think. Um, yeah, anyways, let's talk about this. So the first one we get is Ben Hanscom makes a withdrawal. So Ben, not surprisingly, decides to explore the library, which was his favorite place as a child. Um, and he actually is the first to think about the ritual of Chud. And, and he thinks about how the losers use the silver dollar as a weapon. And there's he's kind of working out in his head if... Um, was it a slug or a bullet? And of course, you couldn't make a char cartridge out of silver. And I think he starts talking to himself and one of the library patrons corrects him on that. But yeah, they were silver slugs used for the, the bullseye, which I, I think was mentioned earlier in the in the novel, which is, uh, I guess it's Bill's uh, um, sling, you know, little slingshot. But there is this, so there's a lot of, important memory in terms of the weapons that are used. He also thinks directly, and I think it's the first time we get a direct discussion of this from one of the losers, except maybe Mike, think directly about adult rationality versus the imagination of childhood, which is, of course, the major theme of this. This, this novel is about the children, your child self saving the adult um, in the end. Uh, and of course, the key weapon of children is, is imagination. And he talks about how they were better able to survive the threats and the dangers, uh, you know, as children do their imagination. And and so he does some things in the library, like he he tries to get a library card as a souvenir. He talks to someone claiming, you know, he lost his younger self. You call metaphorically kind of cool there, where he has to find himself. Right? He has to. All of these characters are somehow trying to find their childhood through these experiences and, and Ben does it obviously in the library. Interestingly, he doesn't do it through Bev, um, which is kind of how, again, what the movie tries to do, make it all about the romance, but Ben's true love in as a child was the library. Now he sees it in the form of Pennywise, uh, the clown, but also as a vampire. So, of course, earlier he saw Pennywise as the mummy, because that's. But here he sees him as a pretty vicious-looking vampire with teeth like razor blades. It's it's kind of how the vampires are described in um, 
not in Salem's Lot, which is more of the classical Dracula type vampire, but but how they're sort of described in the Dark Tower uh, with this kind of mouthful of teeth that can barely close his mouth or whatever. Um, but um, in this, he has kind of a bit of a psychic conversation with with it in the library. Um, and, you know, what to say about this? Well, part of it, well, I guess this comes back to what I was struggling with in the last episode. And that is, its strategy seems to have changed. In 1958, it was trying to kill the children. Now he's trying to convince the losers to leave, um, not directly trying to kill them. I, I, I think it must be a bit taken aback by... Um, something something has changed its strategy maybe it's uh now obviously we'll see in chapter 12 too that its strategy has also changed where it's recruiting henry bowers to basically be his hitman um which is not how he behaved all the time i mean sometimes he it sorry it uh sometimes it did that kind of thing like in um like with the uh, dorsey Cochran, you know using uh, dorsey's father stepfather uh, so it's willing to work through agents, but it's pretty clear here it's trying to convince them to leave. Um, but that scene, I think it's just not... With the exception of maybe Bev's, you don't need Pennywise to appear in any of these scenes. It's it's there because King can't help himself having the scare. So I don't want to take these encounters with it too seriously. Or try to overthink it because what's really important is what's going on in the losers heads the stream of consciousness where they go what they experience and and all that so let's not think too much about it and and just obviously king had these scenes in mind and he wanted to play with them and use them and they're pretty good bev's is really good and bev's is the best uh in all these but anyways what's really important here is ben's musing on magic and childhood right um he's thinking about childhood as the imagination as magical now we've seen evidence of this in earlier chapters but i don't think we've ever seen really losers consciously thinking about how imagination is a weapon against it and uh and and as, as some sort of real magic um, and of course, we also have many ways where Ben is experiencing the merging of past and present, which is also thematically key here. Like he one time talks about seeing his kid. He picks up a book, which is the same book he checked out. And you got like this wonderful time travel where you, I mean, I've been to libraries where I see the old kind of uh, card that was always in the back of the book. I don't know if you're a younger listener, you may not experience this. You probably only went to libraries when they had computer checkouts. But even when I was growing up, you still had this where there'd be a, um, like two cards in the back of the book. And one card would be put with your account, uh, which you'd have a folder or something <laughs> behind the counter. They're associated with your library card and they would take that card. And that'd be the proof that you had checked it out and there'd be a stamp date on it. And then you would have another card, which would tell you your due date and you could sign it out. So you could check out the books and you could see all the names of the people who checked out before you. And so he sees his name there. So it's the book he had actually checked out before his encounter with Henry Bowers in June of 58. So there's that. There's the memory of the silver slug and all that. So there's a lot of more, I guess, 
instantaneous merging of past and present. And I think that's what we see in all these uh, chapters. Not so much a memory, but uh, a, a lived experience that's transcending time. All right. So uh, that's, that's Ben's chapter. Or a section of the chapter. Then we have Eddie Kasbrek makes a catch. Which I really like this chapter in a way. Because we see the... the you know, Eddie was not just this weak kid who, I mean, he was sickly, but that was like a psychological um, weapon used by his mother against him. He obviously wants to play with the other kids. He's obviously uh, has an interest in sports and in baseball. And we see him reflect on baseball while, while he visits the town's baseball field. So this child or this adult uh, remembers his childhood through something he longed to be a part of which was the the baseball games there's there's that old line which i think king had used before in this book or in another like it's like yeah you do want to play baseball do you want to be third base or second base you know uh kind of implying you're not really welcome to play but he really had a love of the game um and he muses about some past games he even thinks about the bullies in a an in a different way, especially Belch Huggins, who we get some of his backstory and we learn he was like a big slow guy, but he could really hit the ball and, you know, he hits this whopper home run and it's just a different take on the bullies. And I guess we, we see how much it transformed the bullies into a threat in 58. I don't know how Bowers was always kind of crazy, but he wasn't like murderous. Uh, in previous, you know, previously, uh, but in this summer, they become murderers. They become tools of, of, of it. He also thinks about a crush he had as a, as, as a young, as a, as a boy, uh, his first crush, I guess. And I, I is that one of the girls who died? Um, I think I think it was one of the people who died in that. That uh, for that cycle that they lived through in the fifties. So, anyways, he's having these thoughts, and they're both. If we've built up an impression of Eddie as kind of sickly and and you know a little fearful, that's take that, that this is the first step in taking that away from us, so that we realize he's actually one of the braver members of of the of the Losers Club. But we also see that he had other interests besides what. Besides the narrative that his mother was imposing on him. So this is part of liberating himself from that. And there's going to be a specific memory in a later chapter of from July of 58, which really makes this clear. And then he becomes like a, essentially one of the fighters of the group uh, when they're in the sewers uh, later on. So this is a really, I think, important chapter for Eddie's character. Um, now, of course, he's also going to encounter it uh, in some way. So he's musing on the past and then he's approached by some of the children who died in 1958. And we learn also here that some of the bullies were killed that summer. So that all except Henry Bowers, the bullies were all killed. Patrick Hoxtetter, I think, gets his first name drop in this chapter. Um, I might be wrong about that, but it's he's not a major figure in the June of 58 chapters. Uh, he's But we learned that he was killed. We learned that Belch was killed. Victor Chris, all the other bullies were were killed except for Bowers. Um, so he's also experiencing mergers of past and present in real time as an adult. Again, it's not just a direct memory so much, but he's actually living it. He's kind of experiencing it directly as a, uh, you know, by going to this this place, the baseball field. Um, he's not going to Mr. Keene's, 
I think that's where they can, sorry to always complain about the movie, but that's what the movie does, right? They have him just visit uh, um, the the pharmacist, right? So it's all about medicine and doctors and his asthma medicine, things like that in, in the movies. But there's much more to Eddie's character here. Um, you know, and I think him, signif- you know, you know, focusing on baseball during his walking tour is super, super significant. Obviously, King loves baseball. Um, he was a major baseball fan and he thinks a lot about it and it appears on many of his works. So that's, I suppose, significant. But uh, his encounter with it is basically he sees some dead kids, which is kind of reminiscent of Stan Uris's, uh encounter with it at the standpipe. So, uh, yeah, I think this chapter is pretty good. Oh, one more thing. He remembers, like, what does he take from this? Well, he remembers going down in the sewer. So that is, hasn't been established yet that the losers in 1958 actually went down the Morlock holes, which are the, what are they? They're like the upright sewer entrances, like where you have a concrete cylinder and, and that move up above the ground. And then you have the kind of the manhole cover on top. These are what Ben Hanscom always called Morlock holes. I'm not quite sure why. I don't know if anything like this was described in the time machine or if it was just Ben's imagination. But this is eventually where they go, and I think this is the first time it's mentioned directly that they they went in the sewers directly to encounter, uh, to face it. Now they were forced into it at the time, but uh, he remembers um, that. So, oh, the girl's name Greta Bowie. I'm looking at the book now. Um, but he sees he sees dead kids. That's that's all. But it's not that significant. He just runs away. Um, some kids see him, think he's a wino or whatever. Next, uh, Bev Rogan pays a call. Now, this chapter was a lot shorter than I remember. I remembered it being longer than it was, but it's only uh, it's only like 12 pages. Um, but she goes to see her uh, father. She doesn't even know her father's if her father's dead or not, which is kind of amazing. Um you know, of course, the losers all have a problematic relationship with their parents, and we don't hear much about their parents after the fact. I guess uh, not even stands. We don't really hear much about what these parents did. Uh, I guess the parents are of dairy, so they're part of the. For- it's part of the forgetting about um, their past. But Bev goes uh, to to her old house that she grew up in, in kind of the poor side of town. Um, she, so thinking her father could still be alive and she doesn't know what she's going to see or what kind of man she's going to come. Obviously she's going to see an old man, broken down man, if he's still living there, you know, and I think the last communication she ever had with her father was something like a, a tell, like a letter or a postcard or something to her just saying like, how are you doing? Are you okay? You know, really kind of standoffish. So it's kind of tragic, you know, obviously their relationship was troublesome. We don't hear anything really about her mother. Um, there must be some detail there about what happened to her mother, but um, I don't remember it. It's all about her father for Bev, obviously. That's their the that's the beginning of the cycle of her bad relationships. But anyway, she rings the doorbell. She sees the name Marsh. She rings the doorbell and she meets someone named Mrs. Kirsch. And then we get a terrifying scene in which Kirsch. Uh, begins to talk about her you know how she met mr marsh before he died talk about her death uh, his death and then 
Um, and then she slowly transform, transforms over the course of the conversation into the woods witch of European folklore, like the wicked, uh, not the way I'm going to say the wicked witch of the West, but no, the, um, the, the, the Hansel and Gretel witch, right? So this, it's it, obviously. It becomes this uh, witch from Hansel and Gretel, which of course has the threat of, of eating her and consuming her. And then it transforms into kind of some form of her father, talking about how uh, her father wanted to like rape her and, you know, give her oral sex is like pretty disturbing stuff which obviously is partially in her subconscious because it's probably pulling these fears from her sub or you know even from her conscious mind um now she's managed to escape it seems that this is a much more dire situation than the other losers get in their um trips around town but uh she does escape and she escapes interestingly by by yelling something like the grackles know your real name which is uh you know, I'm not sure quite what to make of that. It's like, uh, you know, it seems Bev likes birds uh, or has some fondness and some memories of birds. So the grackles are in her head and maybe they're migratory and cyclical like like it. But saying that, it doesn't really matter. It's like he thrust his fist against the post and still insists he sees a ghost. It's not uh, what is said so much as long as it's said with belief as a as a word of power. As a, as like a as a spell almost against it and it works it is taken aback by that and stopped and bev's finally able to get away but she comes out of this quite depressed she says uh we can't beat it whatever it is we can't beat it it even wants us to try it wants to settle the score can't be happy with the draw i guess we ought to get out of here just leave now it also seems that it's trying to scare them away and tells orders some of them to just go home. I think that's what it tells Ben, like just get out of here, go home. You can't beat me. Um, so there's, uh, it's not clear to me still uh, if it knows really what it wants here or if it's just kind of playing it by ear, which is kind of funny if you interpret it that way. You know, given that it really, really fucks it up. Um, now. There's other memories, other tools. One is the love triangle. Like Beverly is the most conscious here of the love triangle. She realizes or she remembers something that she knew when she was a kid, and that is that Ben wrote the poem. I guess on some level she wanted, always, she wanted to believe Bill did it, but she always knew it was Ben. So she has that memory, and she actually remembers it sort of as a love triangle. Uh, so that is... Uh, now, she experiences the merging of past and present as well, obviously, with... Uh, experiencing her father and the home and all that but again it's in real time it's not a strict memory it's something being brought from her childhood to her present which is going to be a weapon she's going to have to use in the the course of the rest of the day uh and into the morning um so now we also see here the long-term effects of l marsh's abuse towards beverly in her relationships and her her inability to establish a, a healthy relationship ongoing uh, anxieties and fears about about you know being sexually violated by her father and you know it's it strongly suggested that al marsh wanted to 
to to rape her and would have if he could. Uh, even her mother was having those fears, always as we saw in the previous chapter. Um, but I think what what I like best about this is this is simply like one of the most creepy and disgusting and hard to read brutal scenes in the book actually it's really really terrifying and i i just you know just enjoy how king crafts this amazing and terrifying scene it's just wonderful and it's uh, one of my favorite parts of the whole book the the transformation of this like even her tea transforms into like uh like shit essentially like shit from a sewer and her voice like the witch's voices change voices change in front of her into some mixture of the of the witch of the woods with her father and you know it's got kind of this east eastern european accent for a while and you know just wonderful stuff in the grackles line it all comes together so well and it's beautifully done and and great stuff really really great chapter so next we have uh richie tozier makes tracks so this is uh, richie's experience uh, now we've um seen some hints i think he's already had like the um his eyes are burning because this is going to be he's going to have some memory of the of the of the smoke hole which is going to be an important part of his uh what he brings to the group uh in with the memory that he brings to the group later on in in the novels we'll see in a few chapters um, but the most important thing here is we finally get Richie's first experience with it during his youth because he's the only one that didn't experience it directly or didn't, was able to tell the story. He does experience it uh, in the in the House at Nebel Street chapter with Bill, but that's as a group. But he, like everyone else, experienced it on his own. Um, but it it appeared to Richie as a large as the large Paul Bunyan statue. Now this is of course in Derry. It's it's a plastic monstrosity right and the history of how that got put there is described here it's like why would you use a plastic um statue for paul bunyan right it should be wood obviously right it doesn't have the blue ox it's just ugly it's based on the real one in bangor which you can see pictures of obviously um now that's how it appeared but it happened after another escape from the bullies so I think he's at school or something, and there's some event at the school or whatever, and he's, um, and then he flees from the school and ends up running through the mall or something. It's like, it doesn't really matter. He ends up fleeing from the bullies, and and he goes to the city center, and there's the park and the Paul Bunyan statue, and he sees this large uh, marquee of a of a concert he wants to go to. Um, which is going to have Jerry Lee Lewis, the Penguins, Frankie Lyman, and the Teenagers, uh, and some others. So great, you know, 50s musicians come. And now he realizes he's probably not going to be able to get tickets to this. Maybe it's too expensive or his parents won't allow him to go. His parents don't like rock and roll, but of course Richie does, and he makes it his career. So that's part of his character is his love of, of rock and roll. He experiences uh, it, though, while he's at the city center, he thinks he's taking a nap, though. He, he can only understand it as a nap at the time, and that's why he never shared it with the others. But now he remembers it as an authentic encounter with, with it. And again, it's a straight-up murder attempt. It's a pretty open place for, him, for, for it to try to murder him, but he tries to, uh, it tries to murder Richie with a 
with the the plastic axe of the you know the Paul Bunyan axe. So um, now after this, after this memory, it uh, appears itself or appears in before Richie as Pennywise, I guess, on t as a giant, no, as the Paul Bunyan statue, I guess. Um, now other things is he loses his contact lenses. Now this is paralleling the broken glasses he used in 1958. We, we saw before how his eyeglasses were broken and they weren't repaired yet. So he, he had the kind of the taped together glasses for, for much of the uh, summer of 58, but also his eyes start to burn. So this is a, um, this is a memory of, of the smoke hole scene as we'll see in a few chapters. Um, but uh, he also gets a sign warning him to leave town using the same kind of uh, imagery of a marquee um, in front of city center uh, showing a concert, right? Advertising a concert, but this concert is warning him to leave town. So Richie's also experiencing the merging of past and present uh, as all the rest do. Uh, again, directly in this time, not a straight up memory, but uh, actually experiencing, seeing uh, things from his past directly. Um, now, one question is, I guess it's a pretty obvious answer, but I guess it's worth throwing out there, is why Richie ha seems to have so much trouble with the bullies. Uh, we're told later on in the book that the one Bowers, anyways, really hates the most is is Mike Hanlon, because that has to do with race, as we'll get to in the, in the next episode. But Richie generally seems to have the most trouble with the bullies because of his big mouth, right? He's called trash mouth, and that his mouth often gets him into trouble. Um, but his mouth is also a weapon. So he's... Uh, so I think in part what he's bringing to the table here is not just the memory of the smoke hole, but, uh, you know, the 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 use of his voices in his mouth as a weapon um so anyways i guess not much more to say about this section then we have uh bill denbro sees a ghost now bill denbro does not experience it uh in this this uh chapter doesn't see Pennywise doesn't experience him at all um, and we're told that on the first line of this chapter but he does learn that it is taking or he does know that it is talking to the children of Derry he talks to two uh, children over the course of this chapter um, and well he realizes that it's active because the two other children that he talks to are fearful of him um, and know something about about it they actually have experienced it in some way um and he warns them and 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 let them go on their way not to freak them out too much and there's a lot of like tension here about you know being an older man being a middle-aged man talking to young people in this town um now interestingly i you know i was i've been rereading 11 63 which i think is the best revisiting of dairy I, i've complained before about how he kind of keeps Derry as a tone, as a setting, because he, he doesn't, want, I guess, want to waste it, but I'm not sure Derry should survive the novel. But in 11-22-63, uh, we return to 58, 
I think that was chose consciously because because Stephen King wanted to revisit Derry in the aftermath of the first battle with with it, and you get to meet Richie and and Bev dancing. It's, it's quite a nice little scene. But I think um, King does a really good job in that novel. It's probably some of the best parts of that novel where he really digs into Derry as a place, so really a toxic place. It's something that an outsider can experience. Now, we don't have any outsiders to Derry here uh, in the novel, really, but we get an outsider to Derry in that novel. So in 2011, 2263, which uh, kind of gives us a new perspective on Derry as just kind of a toxic, weird, gross place with bad people and, and generally bad people and bad feelings and bad vibes. And that character was worried about, uh, you know, talking to kids on, on his own. Right. Um, but, you know, Bill's worried about that, too. And the kids are worried The kids are experiencing kind of just stranger danger around Bill. So um, he eventually visits the secondhand store and finds silver. Um, he, his stutter starts to totally break, fall apart at this point. And this to the point that even scares and kind of disturbs the shop owner. Um, but eventually Bill is able to get through his stutter in part by remembering the rhyme that Bill used to work on a stutter, and he purchases the bike. This is in many ways a symbol of the Losers Club, and it, and it's going to be an important weapon in the final defeat of it, uh, in the final scene of the of the book, which is just beautiful. Um, so it's not really going to be used against it directly. It, it's used sort of as kids in various ways, basically to get away, like in the Pulse on Ebold Street chapter, but uh, it, it's got more of a, it's more of a, a, of a symbol of his childhood and, and his source of magic, right? His steed. If he's a knight, if he's the leader of the losers, it is his horse. Um, now, of course, Bill's experiencing the merging of past and present here through his walking through the town and, uh, I think he even passes the the sewer where where George was killed, uh, talking to the kids. But primarily, it's through Silver that he again. There's a present in the day merging of past and present in the time, which is the whole point of this chapter is how the past and present merge directly. Um, now, the rhyme that Bill uses to work through his stutter is important. It will become an important weapon against it. Um, its power. Well, of course, it over helps him overcome the stutter, but even as he's remembering, his stutter is getting worse. So that's also part of the merging of past and present for him. But I think its power simply is in something that's in his memory. It's something that as a kid he saw as powerful. It's like a, it's like a prayer almost. Um, of course, the meaning of silver uh, as a symbol of his childhood is very, very significant. And... And it's good to hear to see Derry as kind of a lived-in place with a new generation of young people fearful of, of, of Pennywise and having experienced it. I think, yeah, I think one kid talks about seeing a, a, a shark. Of course, then they've all seen Jaws by this point. So um, the, the, the shark becomes a new way that it is able to terrorize the, and, and try to kill the young people of, 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 of Derry. 
Um, and remember, like nine or ten kids have died by this point, which is even almost worse than the 58 round because that was cut short. So we're well into the cycle by this point uh, with, uh, with uh, you know, ten kids killed. Uh, I think ten, eight, nine, maybe it's nine kids and uh, Adrian Mellon, or maybe it's eight kids and Adrian Mellon. I forget. doesn't matter. It's a lot. Um, so finally, we have Mike Hanlon makes a connection. And this is a pretty short little chapter. And here we just have Bill calling Mike at the library saying, and then Mike immediately knows, oh, you found silver. You bought silver. Now, Mike never passed by this store. Secondhand rows, secondhand clothes. Um, and never saw silver. I don't know. Um, maybe. I guess it's believable. I guess there's a lot of places in a, in a, in a mid-size or a small city like this. Of a significant-sized town that you might not cross on a daily basis. There's no history here of how silver got to that secondhand store. What happened to it. Bill's totally forgotten what he did to silver, or, you know, if he sold it or lost it or whatever. But, you know, Mike is not surprised by this because Mike had bought tools and supplies previously that could be used to repair the bicycle. Um, and Bill and Mike both on some level realized the power of this bicycle. And then they go to Mike's house and try to fix up silver. And they even are going to do this. They're going to make it a real child's bike. So they're going to put the the clothespins and the bicycle and the cards right into the bicycle spokes to make it you know give off that sound and while they're doing it they drop the cards and like like there's like what do I, i'll look up what it is oh yeah he drops the cards and only two are face up and they're both aces of spades um now of course aces of spades symbolize aloneness um, it might symbolize the two that are going to be dead by the end of this encounter with it, um, Stan and Eddie. Um, I don't know, but of course it's an impossibility. So the supernatural, I guess not impossible. There could be a misprint or something, but you know, it, it does seem to be an encounter with the supernatural that they have together. So in a sense, all our characters do encounter the supernatural in some way. They all experience magic. They all experience a connection to their past, a merging of the past and present. Um, except maybe Mike, but he even encounters Silver, so it's uh, he's even part of it. So all, all in all, an important chapter. It's memorable for the set pieces and the encounters with it throughout it, but I think there's much more thematically going on in these chapters or this big long chapter, and it'd be a mistake just to look at it as a as a like I said, it's a bunch of set pieces where they each get to encounter it before getting back together and discussing things in the library that evening. All right, so that's most of what I want to talk about, but I do have to talk about the three uninvited guests chapter. Um, this chapter is basically set up. So the three uninvited guests are Henry Bowers, um, Audra, Denbro, and Tom Rogan. Um, now, do these characters need to be there? I mean, Audra sort of needs to be there just for that last scene. I mean, she doesn't really add much to the story, but she is sacrificed to it um, as a kind of parting present uh, that it is giving to Denbro, making his wife catatonic. And then there's that victorious defeat of of it once and for all with the of the magically healing 
Audra on Silver. Beautiful chapter at the end. Um, and then Tom Rogan's function, I mean, you think he's going to go there to try to kill them or at least kill Beverly. I mean, that's certainly his intention, it seems. But he's just there to like ends up kidnapping Audra. We'll get to that later. That's not something we get till part five of the book. But um, but let's do this. The most of this chapter is about Henry Bowers, and oh, oh this is a short, short chapter too. I think it's only twenty pages, maybe maybe twenty five. Um, but Henry Bowers is still in the mental asylum for the criminally insane, the Juniper Hill, which is a place mentioned in a lot of of, of King's novels. The important thing about him is that he's been framed by it for all the murders of 57, 58. And it's, it seems to do this. This is like a tool, I guess. It uses, you know, pin the murders on someone. And Henry Bowers was chosen for that role. That's why he was allowed to survive. That's why he killed his father, or it convinced him to kill his father. Um, but it begins to approach Henry Bowers begins to work on him uh, maybe around the time that it gets frightened by that all the losers show up and that they seem to have some power and memories this leads it to reach out to Henry Bowers through the moon it's quite nice uh, of course we're having uh, memories of the stand here with the moon being a of course there it's a force of good but here the moon is is a bit of a force of evil it's kind of like a balloon right so I mean that part of what's going on here, but uh, it is tells Henry to escape and kill the losers, and it takes the form of the corpse of Belch Huggins to do this. Now, obviously, it's a, it still has significant power. It's able to go all the way to Juniper Hill, manifest itself, use its power to kill the guard to help Bowers escape. You know. I, that's why I sometimes wonder, like, why couldn't it just have killed the losers from afar? Uh, I don't know. Maybe Juniper Hill's close enough. Maybe there's some temporal limits on it. Maybe not. Maybe I overthink this stuff too much. But anyways, it helps Bowers escape by killing the guard using the form of a giant dog, which is something fearful for the guard. Um, now, that happens, and then, and then Bowers escapes. Pretty easy. It's probably not that easy just killing one guard to escape from a asylum for the mentally, you know, criminally insane. But whatever, we need we need Bowers to, to show up. He actually does seem to play a little bit of a role here, even though it's kind of lamer than you'd expect. He doesn't even kill any of the losers, so he just totally fails. But it is part of it. It's like Bowers, both in 58 and 85 is integral in pushing the, the losers to go to the sewer. So maybe that's some parallel there. Now, Tom Rogan, we, we see the backstory of how he tracked down Beverly's friend, uh, that feminist friend who, you know, was trying to talk her to leave her husband long before. And eventually uh, he finds her friend, beats her until she reveals Beverly's just destination. One of the better parts of this chapter is when we see her bloodied and her hand injured calling Derry, calling uh, for information getting all the hotels in Derry because she wants to leave a message for beverly and then she calls all the all the hospitals not the hospitals the hotels until she finally finds the one beverly's at leaves a message and then beverly never gets the message it's uh but this this 
heroic efforts to 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 save a friend is something we've we've seen often in King's novels, of course. Um, now, Tom eventually goes to Derry directly from O'Hare. Bev kind of was trying to cover a trail, so she went from Mitchell, which is the airport in Milwaukee. Uh, but Tom goes, I don't know if it was called Mitchell at the time, but that's how I know it. Um, but Tom goes to Derry from O'Hare directly. So, he, well, he goes, I think, must go to Boston and then get a car. And he steals a car. And, you know, he has plans to kill Beverly. And then we get a little bit on Audra Dembro's decision to go to Derry, being her talking to the director of the film they're working on and the director trying to talk her out of it. Basically her chasing her husband. So they all have their obstacles to get over to, to get to Derry. For Henry, it's that he's in jail. Tom he has to find out where she is and where she's going. And Audra has to kind of get out of her job. It's, that's the least interesting of them, I suppose. Um, now, of these, the part about Henry is the most thematically interesting, obviously, uh, because we see that it and Henry Bowers seem to have a relationship, but do Tom and it have a relationship as well? That is probably a bigger question. We do know Tom is eventually seduced by it to kidnap Audra, and then he's just unceremoniously killed off by it. So he seems to stuff has a function as well but is there a relationship there is it driving tom to act and I, I think there is there's a scene here where after he's beating up bev's friend that he looks in the mirror and doesn't recognize himself so i think yeah obviously tom is brutal and violent and and cruel but um but he's doing stuff even out of his character um henry's life at juniper hill is kind of fun in a way i mean some of the other characters that are thrown in there uh these murderous, insane people, rapists and stuff. And, you know, and Henry's living a life like plant, planting beans, constantly living in the past. He's he's basically like a Al Bundy kind of character whose life is totally in that one past moment. But it's all toxic. He's remembering the, the rock fight and he remembers being, uh, you know, maybe it is trying to force him to remember these things because it's the way he's manipulating him. Um, certainly that's part of it. It is manipulating Henry. Um, but like the other characters, he's as much stuck in the past. He's more stuck in the past because he never really had forgotten the summer of 1958. In fact, he lived with this defeat uh, and series of defeats throughout it. Um, that's, that's an important thing about Henry's character here is he never really had a victory in the entire summer of 1958. He's the big bad bully, but he was always sort of the loser. Uh, being defeated by the losers both individually, like Richie getting away or or Ben getting away and Ben kicking him in the nuts, right? Actually doing a real number on him. Um, and then the rock fight, of course. And then eventually all his friends are killed off. So, you know, he's kind of the loser in a lot of ways. And uh, and he is a loser in a, in a bigger sense. He's from a poor family. Um, his dad's a real loser, so you know this losers club is a bit of a, a misnomer. It's it's kind of part of how they give themselves a name, right? Give them some of their power. Their power is a group. They need to have a name, right? You know, but I, but anyways, I guess the last question here is: to what degree is it actively manipulating Tom Rogan? I think it is clearly doing that. So. Um, I guess that's it. Uh, I don't have too much more to say about uh, these. Essentially, it's just two chapters. Uh, in the next 
episode will move to my favorite section of the book, which is part um, four, the July, July of 1958. Um, so, but first we have another interlude chapter, obviously, uh, the Dairy the Third interlude, and then we'll look at the apocalyptic rock fight and then the album. So three chapters next time. So anyways, uh, let me know what you think of the totality of part three, Grown Ups. Um, it's probably my overall least favorite, even though it has that wonderful chapter with Bev in her old childhood home. More or less, uh, it's not my favorite chapter, but I think it's really important. It sets up a lot. Uh, it really sets up part four, which is wonderful. I think there's not a moment in part four that I dislike. Um, so that's what we'll jump into in the next episode, and I'm quite excited to do so. So uh, as always, let me know what you think of... Uh, what my commentary on this book send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or leave a comment or leave a review of this uh, podcast on on um, iTunes it'll all be very helpful to me so uh, that's it for now I'll see you next time thanks for listening going down to lonesome town where the broken heart Going down to Lonesome Town To cry my troubles away In the town